Good morning, everybody, and happy Easter. He is risen. Yeah, you know, you know the drill. Come on. He is risen, and then you say he is risen indeed. He is risen. Yes, indeed, he is. Uh, let me begin by just, first of all, complimenting you and commending you on your decision to come to church today. Uh, you could have made, made any other decision, but you've made the best decision. You made an excellent decision. There is literally no better choice you could have made for yourself and your family today because what we're celebrating today is something that altered history forever, not only collectively for the entire human race, but in a very personal way for every individual who has found themselves at some point at a dead end. Uh, every individual who has maybe found themselves with no place to turn, no one to turn to, struggling with problems that seem insurmountable, impossible. And maybe that describes what you're experiencing right now, today. If it does, you especially have come to the right place and have reason to celebrate today because today is a reminder that there is no problem, there is no situation, there is no struggle that is impossible or hopeless. I mean, because what is the most hopeless situation you can find yourself in? Dead, right? <laughs> Dead is pretty hopeless, wouldn't you agree? Uh, but Jesus says, not so. For Jesus, even death is not hopeless, and, and because death is not hopeless for him, it is not hopeless for you and me, let a, much, much less uh, the problems and challenges and struggles we face. See, by dying and then rising from the dead, he proved even death is not hopeless, which means there's no such thing as a hopeless situation. He makes a way where there is no way. He rises up from an empty grave, and there ain't no sinner that he can't save. And you know what? All over the world today, in virtually every country, people have gathered together to celebrate that reality today, even in places where it is extremely dangerous to do so. Millions of Jesus followers in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Nigeria, North Korea, China, and many other countries, they have taken great risks to be a part of a gathering just like this one today. They risk cultural persecution. They risk, risk being ostracized. They risk losing their status in the community, possibly the loss of their job. And yeah, in many instances, the, they are even risking their lives to be a part of a gathering like this one. In some countries, it is illegal for Christians to gather like this. They have to meet secret, secretly. And yet, so many choose to meet regardless. They, they, they find that they have to do it. They must do it, not simply in order to check off their religious obligation box for the week, you know, or for the year, but, but rather because gatherings such as this one are, are a lifeline for them a source of life-giving hope and encouragement, truth in a world that is increasingly deficient of it, a connection with other Jesus followers from whom they can draw strength, wisdom, courage, security, and a connection with God in a way that can only be experienced in, a, in community with other 
other Jesus followers. People like this. Let me see if I can get to this here. I want to show you a picture of someone. I am not seeing it here. There we go. Thank you. Yes, this is Rebecca, who three years ago, on Easter Sunday, 2019, was at a church gathering in Sri Lanka when a, a bomb detonated, killing 30 people, including her sister and brother-in-law. Rebecca was badly burned. But this is, this is Rebecca's attitude following that deadly attack. This, I'm quoting Rebecca now. She says, Jesus told us that choosing to follow him meant choosing to suffer for him too. But he also promised to sustain us through it, and he promised that because of, not despite of, but because of our pain, we will experience his love and forgiveness for us and for the world. Can you imagine? You know, it seems that people... The Christians in, in some of these other countries, they know better than we do the truth of what the Apostle Paul wrote uh, in the first century when he wrote this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, think about this. For most of these people that I've been talking about, for most of them, for Jesus followers like Rebecca, if they were simply, if, if they were simply willing to, to not quite be so committed to Jesus, they could keep their jobs, they could perhaps receive promotions, they could be granted social advancement, receive educational opportunities, and be a part of the social and cultural systems and structures that, that offer the possibility of their rising higher and higher in social status and economic advancement. And yet, instead, these Christians willingly, gladly risk losing opportunities losing perhaps their futures, even their lives, not just once a year on Easter, but, but on a weekly basis to, to be a part of this community, this movement that the societies that they live in perceive as backwards, repressive, and even dangerous to society. They would rather bear the scorn the loss, at times even the emotional and physical pain of identifying with Jesus and his followers than to be on the receiving end of all that the world might offer them because they know he makes a way where there ain't no way. He rises up from an empty grave and there ain't no sinner that he can't save. And these Christian communities, churches we call them, these Christian communities have been thriving all over the world for, for nearly 2,000 years now, beginning with those very early first century Christians. See, to, to this day, historians scratch their heads trying to figure out how a tiny, obscure community that began in a tiny, obscure 
province in the backwaters of the mighty Roman Empire. How this tiny little community that by all appearance seemed to have been successfully squashed with the trial and execution of its founder, how this movement, despite widespread continued efforts to kill it by means of imprisonment and torture and execution, how it grew and multiplied so rapidly despite such opposition and ultimately wound up sweeping the globe and becoming what is today the largest movement in human history. Historians can't figure that out. But today, Easter Sunday, this is a powerful reminder of exactly how that happened. Because you see, the founder of this movement, Jesus, yeah, they executed him, but he did not stay dead. <laughs> He was raised back to life the third day after his execution, and there were eyewitnesses. And this risen Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. And most of those people ultimately went to their deaths. And this is a matter of historical record. They went to their deaths defending their message, defending the truth of what they saw and experienced. And these early Jesus followers, like so many Jesus followers in other countries today, where they risked their lives to be a part of this community and this movement. They experienced a life and a love and a hope that provided them with great peace and great joy and great courage to follow him, even in the midst of such great opposition and persecution. The Apostle Paul, he promised that this would be characteristic of those who would truly follow Jesus. He wrote this, uh, in his letter to the Christians living in Rome in the first century, he says, it stands to reason does that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life, your old life, the life, the life that you had. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. And this is what those first century Christians knew. They knew this, not just as a, a Bible memory verse. I mean, they didn't even have a Bible back then. They knew and experienced it as a reality that even death itself could not negate. It's something they personally possessed as well as shared and celebrated among themselves whenever they gathered together. The reality that he makes a way where there ain't no way, that he rises up from the empty grave and that there ain't no sinner that he can't save. And here's the point I want to drive home today. This is something you today are invited into something that can radically alter the course of your life, something that can provide you with a new and powerful purpose and reason for living. Right now, you are invited into a new community and a new sense of belonging and a new direction that will lead you to a whole new destiny 
a new and glorious eternal destination as well as new life in the here and now. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about this more specifically, uh, which is, which is you know, what it is that we're, we're being invited into. We're starting a series today called Engraved Invitation. We're going to be talking over the next several weeks what you're being invited into, you know, into, into true significance. Your life really does matter. And, and it matters what you do with your life. Into new community, of, uh, a new community of love and belonging, a community where your presence and participation makes a difference forever, for eternity. You're invited into genuine freedom, not freedom to do whatever you want, you know, whatever your appetites and desires compel you to do, which, which most would agree is not really freedom. It's actually maybe some kind, to, to some degree, addiction but rather a freedom to make a difference, a freedom to be a conqueror, a freedom to lay down your life and lay down your pride and genuinely and humbly serve one another. You're being invited into to the truth that sets you free. You're being invited into a joyous celebration that just keeps growing and growing, fueled by heartfelt worship and gratitude to the God who makes a way when there ain't no way, rises up from an empty grave, and saves a sinner that nobody else can save. You're being instead extended today a remarkable invitation. So, so yes, I commend you for being here today. I mean, it's no secret. A lot of people make it a priority to go to church on Easter, and I think that's a great priority, a tremendous priority. I commend you, but I would be doing you a great disservice to not encourage you to accept the invitation to make this more than a once a year or twice a year thing, or even a once a month thing. I would be doing you a great disservice if I failed to encourage you, to urge you, to plead with you to make this gathering a regular weekly thing. Listen, Jesus himself reached for the most dramatic illustrations to try to help people understand what they are missing out on when they decline God's invitation to be a part of his kingdom. And this is really what church is. It's a microcosm of the kingdom of God. It's how he fulfills his plans and purposes in this world. It is the community of those who follow Jesus and have made a commitment to him and to one another that they are going to seek first his kingdom above all else, seek his will, seek his ways, seek to live out individually and in community with one another his teachings and his values. It's his kingdom. It's a community and a culture where Jesus is king. It's where he rules and reigns, and he reached for the most dramatic examples and illustrations to try to help us all understand what's at stake, what we risk losing if we, if we neglect or ignore this invitation. Uh, one such illustration is a parable that Jesus uh, told that both Matthew and Luke recorded in their accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, and it went like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is like a huge feast, an awesome celebration. In Jesus' day, the most lavish, spectacular, exciting event you could possibly ever hope to be invited to was a royal wedding. 
Because if anybody knew how to throw a party, it was royalty, and they had the material means and the financial resources to, to, to really pull out the stops. In our day, royal weddings are cool, but they're not like the Super Bowl, right? In, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, the Oscars where anything can happen. It, it's not like the 2016 World Series. 2016 World Series where, where people paid over $1,170,000 for a ticket to a baseball game. Right, that is true. Google it, look it up. People paid over a million dollars for a ticket. Now, perhaps if they had the NFL or the World Series in the first century, Jesus might have used that as an illustration. But he reached for the most spectacular, lavish, grandiose event known to human beings at that time, and that was a royal wedding. And in those days, a royal wedding, or anybody's wedding for that matter, rather than lasting just a few hours, you know, like a playoff game, a wedding celebration could go on for a week or longer. You know, food and wine and music and dancing and games and entertainment and, and time off of work, you know. I mean, a royal wedding was the most spectacular event you could ever hope to not only get tickets for, but to be invited to. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants... Uh, to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And at this point, Jesus' lis listeners are going, who would in their right mind turn down an invitation to a royal, royal wedding celebration? It would be inconceivable to them, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen are fattened, uh, my oxen and fat and cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. The king sends out his messengers and says, listen, <laughs> explain to them, all right? Explain to them. The king is going all out on this. I mean, he's invested a, a significant amount of resources into this celebration. It's going to be really, really off the hook. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. Luke put it actually this way. They, they both tell this story, and Luke actually puts it in this way. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, why is Jesus telling this story? Here's why he's telling this story. Because this has been the story of human beings since the beginning of creation. God has invited us into his kingdom, into his family, to be a part of his movement, into his community, to be a participant in the glorious work of redemption he is carrying out in the world through his church. And yet we tend to prioritize every other thing above participating in the most glorious enterprise you could ever hope to be invited into. C.S. Lewis makes an interesting observation. Um, because, see, we, we often think that if we're really going to follow Jesus, then, well, it means we're going to have to give up this, and we're going to have to deny ourselves those things, and that it would really require so much sacrifice and self-denial if we really want to follow Jesus. But C.S. Lewis makes this point. He said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward 
and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I mean, come on. Imagine, imagine you giving someone a ticket to the World Series that you paid you paid $1,170,000 for that ticket to give to this person that you love so much and that you look forward to going to this game with, but the day rolls around and you get this call. Uh, thanks for the ticket, bro, but sorry, turns out I'm not going to make it. Yeah, I just bought a cow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I got to go check them out. You mean you didn't check out the cow before you bought them? Nah, dude, it was kind of a blind sale kind of thing. So sorry, I can't make it. In other words, he's just making excuses. Jesus continues with the story. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Uh, then the king became angry, and he ordered his servant, okay, quickly, go out into the streets and alleys of the town and bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the king told his servant, then go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Imagine you yourself throwing a wedding celebration, something that happens, you know, in the life of a person ideally only once, right? A wedding celebration and you, you, either your wedding or maybe the wedding of your son or daughter, and you spend tens of thousands of dollars send out invitations to hundreds of people, book a super expensive venue, cater, cater a lavish meal, hire the best band, rent a huge dance floor, dance floor and, the, and the wedding day rolls around and only a handful of people show up. It, you know, just maybe a dozen people show up because, well, other commitments, certainly you understand. That wouldn't be much of a celebration, would it? The last line, compel them to come in so that my house will be full, speaks to God's determination that his kingdom is going to be, whatever the cost, full of people celebrating. It's going to be an off-the-hook celebration, a celebration in honor of the one who makes a way where there ain't no way, rises up from an empty grave and saves a sinner that nobody else can save. And you don't want to miss it. You're invited. You don't want to miss it. Listen, you have been invited to be a part of, to be a participating member of the greatest community in existence, one that was powerfully and gloriously initiated by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. See, the reason he went to all that trouble and what agonizing trouble it was the reason he went to all that trouble was to give birth to a new community, one in which the gates of hell itself would not prevail, which is why people all over the world 
gather together every Sunday to celebrate, to encourage one another. People like Rebecca, people even where it's dangerous to do so, they gather together to devote themselves to the Word of God, to pray and to worship, to serve one another, and to celebrate, and to change the world through, through the missions that we do together as a community. I love this quote from uh, pastor and author Bill Hybels from his book, Courageous Leadership. I just love this quote. Listen to this. There's nothing like the local church when it is working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential unlimited. It covers the grieving, uh, it comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources to those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addiction, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has greater capacity for healing and wholeness. Still to this day, the potential of the local, local church is almost more than I can grasp. No other organization on the earth is like it. Nothing even comes close. And some of you have been the marginalized. Some of you have been the addicted. Some of you have been the oppressed. And you've, you've found healing and freedom and redemption in a community just like this one. The church is the hope, the one and only hope of the world. And you're being invited into it. The church that Jesus bled and died for and rose again to give birth to. See, what the world needs now, right now, more than anything else, is not more politicians. I don't think I need to tell you that. Not more NGOs, not more celebrity philanthropists. What the world needs now, more than anything else or anyone else, are more individuals who are fully devoted, unwaveringly committed to Jesus and his community and his church. People who will treasure the church as much as Jesus treasures the church. People who commit themselves to Jesus and his church and like Rebecca, let nothing else get in the way. Nothing else get in the way of that. This morning, you are being handed an engraved invitation, figuratively, of course. Engraved invitation. They're not as common or as familiar as they used to be. See, in the days of old, when you were being invited to a very, very upscale, exclusive event or club or society, you might have been sent an engraved invitation, an invitation that was engraved on a piece of glass or marble or even onto a small gold or silver platter. And it was a way of demonstrating that a great deal of, of expense and, and care went into the invitation itself. And if that much care and expense went into the invitation, the implication was the event or the club or whatever it is you're being invited into is that much, I mean, imagine the, the grandeur of this event that you're being invited into. And if you were on the receiving end of one of these engraved invitations, you were a very highly valued person. There was a lot of expense that went in just the invitation. So you were a very special person whom the host wants very much to be a part of this community. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Jim's using Easter as an opportunity to invite people back to church. But no, I'm not doing that. Jesus is. And he's been doing it for the past 2,000 years. Th that is the whole point of his death 
and resurrection. You see, this morning, you have been given an engraved imitation, but an imitation not engraved in glass or marble or even in gold or silver, but engraved on the very body of Jesus. See, when Jesus bore upon his head the crown of thorns and gave his back to the scourge, gave his hands and feet to the nails of crucifixion and his, his side to the spear, he was in effect engraving on his body an invitation of love and new life, an invitation that was intended to communicate just how precious you are to him and how deeply he desires for you not just to be forgiven, you know, being forgiven is so wonderful and so necessary. Forgiveness is, the, is that awesome reality that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what dark secrets you may be carrying today, whatever, what guilt and shame you may be experiencing, Jesus bore your guilt and shame on the cross, which means that today you can be forgiven no matter what you've done. That's a glorious reality, but forgiveness is just the beginning. When Jesus rose back to life after the third day after his crucifixion, he opened the door to a whole new world of possibility for you. And he stands now alive and risen today to invite you into that whole new reality, that whole new world. One where he makes a way, where there ain't no way, where you can rise again from an empty grave and where you maybe are the sinner that he came to save. What will you do? What will you do with that invitation? Let's pray and we're going to hear a song. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that today there are people here that perhaps are carrying a load of guilt and shame. And they're overwhelmed with perhaps sin and mistakes they have made from their past. And they need your forgiveness today. Lord, thank you that you have forgiven them. And all they have to do is receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I know that there are people today that are facing impossible situations. And there just doesn't seem to be a way out. They don't feel like they have anybody to turn to but today Jesus you have demonstrated that there is no hopeless situation and Lord today all of us are being ex extended an amazing invitation I pray Lord Jesus that there wouldn't be a person that leaves here today yes to that invitation in Jesus name Are you past the point of view? Is your burden waiting? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Shame's done all its stealing. And you're desperate for some healing. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He made
And the good news is 